It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hi, Jess and Kate. This is Jeff from Austin. That's G-E-O-F-F. And I'm calling as an ally, by the way, so hold your fire. Uh, I just wanted to call because someone has to put that chauvinist asshole, Kurt from Fort Collins, in his place. I mean, who does he think he is calling in every week and completely harassing you two? To be perfectly honest, I'm a little triggered that you guys even give him oxygen. I mean, not trying to mansplain here, but just a little unsolicited advice. Don't platform people like that. (laughs) Anyway, love the show, and I just wanted to say that Kurt does not know what he's talking about. There's nothing wrong with women's sports. I mean... If only they could pull the ratings in prime time, you know? Such a challenge. You know, I think it's okay for women's sports to be niche. I totally understand how tough it is. That is, not that I'm a... Like, I'm not a woman or anything, but... The economics aren't there. And it makes me so mad. But, you know, maybe WNBA can create its own crypto. That's big. I mean, nothing as big as Bitcoin, but... Maybe like a Little Doge or Galcoin or something? I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but... Women could learn something about crypto, too, so that's a win-win. But, yeah, God, so tough. So tough as women. Anyway, love the show. The first episode, anyway. Well, I, I listened to the trailer, but I'm a little backed up with some really good shows that are out there right now. But uh, love what you two powerful women are up to. Yes, queens! <laughs> um, okay, see ya. Kate, we have a new caller today at the huh. top of the show. Yeah. Kirk from Fort Collins. I, I haven't heard back from him since our date. I'll offline with you about that one. We're back with another episode of Off the Looking Glass, Kate. And since our last episode, there's been some news. Yeah. We, um, we've been aggregated. Um, oh, no. Yeah. We've been aggregated, Jess, which I don't know. Is this is a badge of honor? I think it is a badge. Well, this isn't our our first aggregation this isn't our we were we have been aggregated before and i learned something about you the first time we were aggregated which is that you don't like to read news stories about yourself or like things that you've said or reported or done yes you prefer to just kind of like ostrich it like stick your head in the sand oh that's just do that that is a fantastic visual yes thank you that is essentially what i do when i read that someone and this doesn't happen very often mind you is either synthesizing information that i have been involved in i don't have a lot of faith jess that it will be synthesized in a way that I think is nuanced. So I get scared and my reaction is to ignore it. So I read some of this article to you because I knew you weren't going to read it yourself. And there were a couple paragraphs that I think stuck out to you. So I'm going to reread them here. And like, I'll, I'll be honest, the article was pretty newsy. It wasn't like a hit piece on us. It wasn't like super editorialized. But there were some choices made in it that I think are things we can talk about and spin this forward a little bit. Let me read the tweet first. Should I read the well, tweet Well, read the first? tweet. Yeah. Please read the tweet. Yeah. So this was December 23rd, so Christmas Eve Eve, at 8.30 p.m., ESPN's women's sports Twitter handle put out a tweet that said, former Notre Dame coach Muffet McGraw said on a podcast released Wednesday, that's us, 
that ESPN is, quote, Connecticut's network and that there is, quote, absolutely complete bias there. That is the extent of my consumption of this information. There was then a link to an article. So ESPN aggregated a podcast released on Wednesday, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Off the Looking Glass. You can buy that shirt on worldofsui.com. Mm-hmm. So I'll read this paragraph to you because there's also a second part to it that I think tries to editorialize a little bit that we might have some comments on. So it says, UConn has had four games broadcast on ESPN, ESPN2, or ABC this season with two still to come. However, most of the Huskies games are broadcast on SNY and Fox is the official network of the Big East, including its conference tournament. The ACC and SEC networks, both owned and operated by ESPN, broadcast multiple women's basketball games each week from these leagues throughout the season, along with covering those conference tournaments. So it's saying, like, as ESPN, we talk about other stuff. Like, we talk about other women's basketball games. We don't Do broadcast we? all the UConn games. Do we? Which, like, look, I'll be, you know, Muffet's a panelist on the ESPN Women's Basketball pregame show. Like, I, they do, they do pregame and postgame coverage. But, like, this isn't, like, that isn't really what this conversation's about. It's part of it, like you said. But, like, the rights deals of these networks aren't the end-all, be-all of who gets covered and where. Because I think we've seen ESPN is, is, like, a big, a big chunk of it but there's other media outlets who will default their coverage of women's basketball to UConn yes I've heard you talk about dealing with this at ESPN on sure. first take okay so here's a perfect way to illustrate what we're talking about when we say UConn's outsized influence at least half a dozen times when I was on first take we'd have one segment at the end five minutes like a little small segment and we'd pitch the idea of like doing the top five college basketball players or like who are the tops programs? And every time I would pitch something about women's basketball, it was made very clear to me that the only way we'd be allowed to talk about it is if it was about UConn. Because otherwise, a producer would say, well, if you talk about something else, another player, another program, the audience, you'll lose the audience because their only frame of reference is UConn. And then in addition, they would say the other people on the show with you, the other talking heads, if you try to expand the conversation away from UConn, they won't be able to talk about it. It's only going on air if you stick to UConn because it's what people know. That That is being mimicked a thousand times, not on TV shows, but in newsrooms across the country. UConn is the default. This should not make UConn fans happy. They should want the game to expand And I'm sure I know Gino wants the game to expand. I have no doubt the last couple years as the game has grown, he is enjoying that as well. So UConn fans need to not take this personally. This is about the system that is in place. That's what it's about. This is an important point because I think the default position, just like UConn is the default team to cover in media when it comes to women's basketball, the default position among UConn fans is to assume that you and I want to tear UConn down. Like the solution to this problem is not UConn being worse or covering UConn less. The solution is to- Cover everyone else more. Yes, you can in fact keep covering UConn as much as you're covering them and then triple down on your coverage and add the same amount of coverage that you give to UConn to Stanford, who is killing it on the West Coast and to South Carolina, who is killing it down here in South Carolina. Like the solution that we are suggesting is not Everyone stop covering UConn. That's ridiculous. They are the best women's basketball team 
in history in a lot of areas, winning percentage, Tennessee continues to be the best of all time. We saw that well, argument Kate, playing out too. Yes, I will say there were two arguments playing out as this tweet gained momentum and was retweeted. And one of them was like, of course, UConn gets all this coverage. Like, we are UConn. We invented women's basketball. We are like the gods among all of these men. Well, that's a terrible analogy because they're all Go women. Go for it. But you know what I mean. <laughs> we are gods amongst women at basketball. And then the other argument was like, eh, we're like these Tennessee fans on the other side of Twitter mm-hmm. were very upset at the UConn fans. And it was very ironic that Muffet was then followed in our episode last week or two weeks ago by our sliding doors feature that you wrote about Tennessee and UConn and like the birth of that rivalry. But I digress. Yeah. The point is um, people are very, very fired up about this, Kate. And we we inadvertently made some news. Well, maybe it was on purpose, but, you know. I think that you and I have always been striding to make news and to be aggregated. I mean, there is there any better pat on the back than to be aggregated? Come on. It's such, it's flattery. Are we flattered? Should we feel flattered? I'm flattered. I hope people go back, though, and listen to the first five episodes of the show, if you haven't already, off the looking glass. And hear the way that this has played out, because we've asked UConn players about it. We've asked pretty much everyone who's been on the show about it. Some people had very diplomatic answers. Some people, like Muffet, said what was on their mind and, you know, ended up making a little bit of news. Kate, what just happened? Well, we are down here in this rabbit hole because... Gino Ariema has responded to Muffet McGraw. No, 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 no. Respond is not even the right word, Jess. Uh, it's an- not. It's not strong enough. Annihilate? Uh, drop slammed. a nuclear bomb on? Attack? Viciously? Murdered. No. Maybe? Woo! Kate, th- th- so, all right, let's 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 peel back the layers of this onion. Let's peek behind the curtain, maybe, on, on how off the looking glass is made, how the sausage is made. Mm. We are dropping in this rabbit hole. Yep. After we already talked about all of this and thought he had no comment. No comment. So that we had already recorded, but now we have to update it with this breaking news. And this is what Gino Ariema had to say about Muffet McGraw's comments. This is from Daniel Connolly, who also did not, mentioned the name of our podcast in his tweets which is a podcast released on wednesday as everybody Uh, just just say it one time people anyways gino says i guess muffet's bored i guess she doesn't have a whole lot to talk about usually when she was coaching when she did talk nobody listened anyways gino continued i think the bias has to do if there is any with the 11 national championships which is a lot more than two I do want to thank the people at ESPN for helping us win 111 in a row. Sarcasm font. I mean, if it wasn't for them, there's no way we could have done that. So hopefully there's some people over there that can take credit for that. Gino has twice said, this is not in quotes, Gino has twice said how Sesame Street has taught him how numbers work. He isn't sure about McGraw, though. Quote, she did say we've won more than anybody except Tennessee, which again, I think she missed Sesame Street growing up. 11 is more than eight. (sighs) <sighs> wait so somehow he went from no comment and then he must have just stewed <laughs> he must have just stewed over the holidays and then he came back with this which jess you and i have been talking about is vicious it's it's pretty vicious and it also one 
seems to me that he did not listen. It was just not surprising. He did not necessarily listen to Off the Looking Glass or listen to any of them to understand the framework of what we're talking about or to understand Muffet McGraw's comments. Because in it, she said that she would get burned for things way harder than he would if he said similar things. So she didn't say anything attacking Gino, specifically, personally. In, in this interview, yes. correct. He comes back, I think, with what they call ad hominem. Yeah. He goes right explain, for her. Explain to the listeners what that, what that logical fallacy I, is, it's, what an ad hominem attack is. People are asking for the audience. For the, wink, what wink. What does it mean? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, by the way. Ad hominem. I think you are. Okay. It's a if Latin phrase meaning, what, to the man, to the person, at the man? Basically saying, instead of addressing actual Yukon bias and the structure of the sports world, I'm making big sweeping gestures with my hands here. Instead, he attacked Muffet McGraw, mostly. And then kind of addressed the ESPN angle of it, but that's an easy thing to address and not the big picture of it. But damn, damn, damn. How... I'm, I'm speechless, Jess. I don't know what to it's say. It's particularly mean. No, yeah. I am a little speechless too. You know what this was? This was Gino just saying, um, scoreboard. That's essentially what it was. But there's a lot of scoreboards to point to because he calls her out for not understanding numbers because their winning percentage is the highest in Division One women's basketball history. So is that one version of the scoreboard? And then the other is national championships. It's like, I don't know. Does Sesame Street tell us about when there can be data? (laughs) There can be data with overlapping connotations. I don't know. Maybe I missed that episode of Sesame Street. Okay. Okay. One more question before we get out of this rabbit hole. How do you feel about us being a news breaking slash news making podcast? I I don't think we expected to see ourselves here this quickly. I don't want, I don't want it. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't want it. No, thank you. It's too, it's too... I was in the middle of watching Yellowstone and now I'm responding. I mean, this is what happens when you're a news breaking entity. You don't get to watch full episodes of Yellowstone. You have to stop and look at Twitter. No. Can't be bad for downloads, though. Let's go back up. Like, Jess, do, do we think it's a coincidence? And my answer is no, that the most powerful women's basketball program in the world is coached by a man. The most powerful women's soccer program in college, North Carolina historically, is coached by a man. The most powerful women's volleyball program in college sports is coached by a man, Penn State, who recently no, resigned. I mean, I, recently retired. Yeah, like is that? I a don't think it's. Ex- no, I think men are better coaches than women. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we should tell people though what is on the show today. Yes, Kate. And I was thinking of something Renee Montgomery told us, UConn grad. See, we in also episode had UConn one on this show. In episode one, which was that us talking about the concept of UConn privilege was proof that like we're part of the problem because we need to talk about other athletes and other stories and other impressive women throughout mm. history. Yes. So that's what we're going to do today. You have a story for me that is about something I have never heard of before, a person I've never heard of before, in a time long before I ever lived, and I'm very excited to hear it. Yes. This is a story that I've been texting you nonstop for the last month about how thrilled I am to be working on and writing, and it is finally ready to be released. 
and it's an extra extra. And we are going all the way back to the 1870s, to New York City in the 1870s, to an athlete I'm almost sure you've never heard of, and a sport almost none of you have ever heard of. And we have a new sponsor, so do not skip the ads. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. This is Nancy Lieberman, my first game in Dallas. I almost took the same playbook from when I went to Old Dominion. We spoke at a Rotary Club, and I said, look, do me a favor. If you will come to a game, if you like what you see, come back and bring people. If you don't like what you see, then at least you try it, right? And then you're not going to be part of the woulda, coulda, shoulda club. You try. You saw it. If you like us, just support us. We need your support. So the epiphany for me is I didn't realize as a professional athlete that I would still have to be selling, 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 selling the game every single day. Coming up, a very special extra, extra. But first... A word from our sponsor? Being a coach is hard. It's mentally, physically, and spiritually draining. Your athletes turn to you for guidance and stability, but who can you turn to when you need a recharge? From the makers of the Calm app comes Time Out, a daily mindfulness and meditation app for coaches. Great job today, coach. You left it all out there. That's right. You provided a strong moral example and your team will all be better for having had you in their lives. Let's start with some deep breathing. Inhale. You're incredible. Exhale. Lateral jumps. Inhale, shuttle run. Exhale, Gatorade. The timeout meditation app for coaches. We offer over a hundred different meditation and mindfulness practices for coaches. We even offer meditation for female coaches. Wow, you're a lady coach. Take a moment to let that phrase wash over you. Lady coach. Good job. Does your head hurt from smashing that glass ceiling? Let's start with some deep breathing. Inhale. You've come so far. Exhale. Do you think you came across likable to the refs? Inhale. Remember in the press conference when you said your mom was your biggest hero? Do you think that was a good idea? Exhale. Think back to the game. Is it possible that you had a nip slip despite wearing a bra, undershirt, blouse, and blazer? Inhale. Really think. Did you? Exhale. Not to beat a dead horse, but I really don't want you to forget about that time when you were coming out of the bathroom and that 
woman reporter was going in and you leaned to the left and she leaned to the right and you kind of did that weird dance and laughed and then you said you go and she said no you go so you both went and you kind of got in each other's way again and you had to kind of giggle and and laugh about it it went on and on for what felt like hours inhale exhale time out meditation app for coaches Use code ICEBATH to start your free trial and use your first time out today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where to begin this tale? I've started and stopped a dozen times, worried that I'll fail to instill the same sense of wonder in you that I felt when first stumbling upon this long-ago story, surprised, as ever, at the gems that time buries. The sport? Pedestrianism. The time? The 1870s. Do I begin at the 2nd Regiment Armory? future home of Oprah's famous Harpo Studios in Chicago, believed to be haunted by the victims of the listing SS Eastland in 1915. But before that, and the relevant moment in this little ditty, the site of the six-day race between May Marshall and Bertha von Hillern in 1876. Or do I just dive right in, the clock nearing midnight on January 12th, 1879, and the hero of our story nearing the end of her 28-day quest and surrounded by a crowd the New York Times called One of the most dense and enthusiastic ever seen in Brooklyn. But no. First, I must set the scene and explain why any of these things happened at all. Why the moment was right for the birth of organized sport in America. Why it's still relevant today. And why and how, perhaps, the most clever star of this whole craze was a woman named Ada Anderson. Here is Matthew Algeo, author of Pedestrianism, When Watching People Walk Was America's Favorite Spectator Sport. It was an interesting time and place. A few things were going on, I think, at the same time that led to pedestrianism being this huge sport. Uh, one was urbanization. You had a lot of people moving into the cities in the decades after the Civil War. People who had a little extra money, who had a little bit of free time, and were just looking for ways to amuse themselves. 
Now, most amusements at that time were really aimed toward the upper class, you know, the opera, the orchestra. There wasn't much for regular people, middle class, lower class people. And so there was a huge void there. And really, pedestrianism just kind of stepped in, pardon the pun. And stepped and stepped and stepped. Because it was easy. No equipment was needed. And the spaces had just started to pop up. Agricultural halls and gardens public spaces for this new urban boom. In fact, Madison Square Garden was, before it became the world's most famous arena, known as Gilmore's Garden, an open-air public space where many pedestrians held their popular races and drew very big crowds. It was sort of like watching NASCAR at three miles an hour. So, yeah, the allure of pedestrianism wasn't about the sport itself. It was about everything surrounding it. It's funny now, gambling seems to be, well, it is, it's just roaring back in, in the United States. And again, it, you know, when you watch a football game, you can bet on just about anything. How many first downs will a team have? Well, it was that way with pedestrianism. You can wager on anything. How many steps one lap would take? Who would drop out first on the second day? I think we'd call these prop bets. And they also figured out, you know, you have this captive audience inside an arena or in a confined place that you could sell them stuff. And so the bars did this amazing business. They sold all kinds of alcohol. They sold deviled eggs and, you know, and pickled hams and all kinds of stuff. I mean, all the basic rudimentary things that we now associate with spectator sports today were really present in this craze of pedestrianism in the 1870s and 1880s. There were the good guys and the bad guys and that sort of thing. So there's some very charismatic personalities competing in it as well. So all these things came together in this one moment to create this spectacle of these great walking matches. It's easy with a 2022 viewpoint to believe our obsession with sports Sports at all costs is some modern invention, a thing of our obsessive times. But then you stumble upon this collection of words from the New York Times from 1879, from the days after a stunningly popular walking match. It is true that the immoral and vulgar branch of human society, which is called in this country the sporting gentry, was completely absorbed in the contest. And it cannot be denied that the crowd which surrounded the circus building was rough and unsavory in manners and atmosphere. Notwithstanding all that, the horrible fascination. Just reminding you, this horrible fascination? Walking. The horrible fascination of the hour spared neither age, sex, nor condition. It is idle to say that only rude sporting men or coarse women sympathized with the contestants, cheering them in their arduous tasks and devoured with avidity the details of the race daily spread before the reading public by a newspaper press which never fails to seize the fleeting fancy of the hour. The newspaper press which never fails to seize the fleeting fancy of the hour. And this is 140 years before Twitter. And then this, later in the same article, a moral panic about the bloodthirst of watching these long walks, knowing full well the grueling toll that this walking would put on the human body. The thoughtless public which looks on with curiosity and roars its approval with enthusiasm does not consider that these gladiators are overtaxing themselves and drawing down the last resources of nature. Here, I shall allow you to draw your own modern-day parallels, whatever they may be. But the overall point is this. People were digging this sport, I tell you. And because of its fundamental, almost universal nature that would be walking, it wasn't long before women started meandering onto the scene. 
Okay, no more puns, sorry. Back to the story. This is serious stuff, and the women of the time took it seriously. But in a pattern that would repeat itself again and again, the world was first and foremost concerned not with what these women did, but with what they looked like doing it. The press paid a very different kind of attention to them. For one thing, they were fixated on what the women were wearing. Could you see their calves? They always noted if they, you could see the shapely calves. I think the spectators, sometimes, uh, you know, the, the allure was to see uh, a woman in distress. I, I think a lot of, a lot of the uh, attendance, you know, was curiosity. You know, how can a woman possibly walk for six days? This was one of the most popular contests, a six-day walk with the acronym G-O-Y-P, Go As You Please. Each contestant walked when they could, slept as they wanted, and at the end of six days, whomever had walked more was declared the winner. Why six days, you ask? Well, you couldn't walk seven days. It was against the law. That was Harry Hall, whose book is The Pedestrians, America's Forgotten Superstars, on Sundays, all you could do was go to church, you could pick up medicine, you could deal with your crops if you had to, but everything else was illegal. So they had the six-day walks. The most famous of these God-fearing six-day races among the upstart pedestrians was held in Chicago on the site that eventually became Oprah's studios. The year was 1876. The competitors were May Marshall and Bertha Von Hillern. Here's Harry again. There's one moment uh, in the Marshall Von Hillern walk where uh, May Marshall says, I'm going to go to bed now and tells her attendant, wake me up at 4.15. Well, Bertha Von Hillern hears that. She turns to her and says, wake me up at 3.45. We won't linger too long on the Marshall Von Hillern rivalry, except to say their 1876 races paved the way for what was to come next. A solo walker who proposes a walk that even the men of her day considered preposterous. In October of 1878, Ada Anderson, born in London, who left home at 16 to join a theater troupe, sails on the steamship Ethiopia across the Atlantic with her manager and assistant. The game plan was very modern. She wanted to capture the U.S. market. And to do so, she needed something bold, something dramatic. She announced she was going to walk 2,700 quarter miles in 2,700 quarter hours. A quarter mile every 15 minutes for a month. She'd never get more than 10 minutes continuous rest. Let me do some quick math for you. That's 28 days, almost a marathon, walked each day with absurd sleep deprivation. And this was nuts. Nobody over here had ever heard of something like that. The longest anyone in human history has ever gone without any sleep at all is 11 days or so. And you start to hallucinate after just three or four days. Much of what is known about what happens next comes from Hall's book. Ada Anderson's team approaches Gilmore's Garden, which would soon become Madison Square Garden. But the owner rejects the proposal, and he says this. The woman will never accomplish the feat, and nor can any woman. This dude, he was a Vanderbilt, so he's an ancestor of Anderson Cooper's. And yes, he would have been dragged on Twitter for this. Like millions trying to make it in the Big Apple, Anderson had to travel first across the river to Brooklyn, to a little spot called Mozart's Garden, which stood at the corner of Smith and Fulton Streets. 
And this whole building was only about the size of a basketball court. And that includes the stands, everything. So these buildings were really small. And the track was only about as wide as home plate. It was a little bit wider than that, but not much. Seven laps made a quarter mile. And Anderson pitched herself a privacy tent just off to the side. At first, the price of admission was 25 cents. And the deal she'd struck with the venue was that after 28 days, she'd receive a quarter of the gate receipts. Within just two days, the sleep deprivation became apparent, with Ada sometimes stumbling through the quarter mile, semi-conscious, her manager occasionally needing to send her back out there because she'd miscounted the laps. But other times, she'd seem energetic almost, and she'd sing and dance and play tricks on spectators. Her biggest complaint, though, were the blisters. The New York Times was, to say the least, skeptical of the endeavor. Here's a snippet of an article from the opening week of Anderson's 28-day pursuit. But it is not easy to thrill at the sight of a human creature plodding wearily around a circle of sawdust or tan bark until exhausted nature gives way. The only conceivable attraction in this spectacle is that presented by those sturdy legs encased in flesh-colored tights and crimson hose. And they, or equally comely ones, might perhaps be seen without the ghastly accompaniment of weariness and overexertion. One thing is true. They had a way with words back in 1878. But another thing would prove not true, because the people would, in fact, thrill at the sight of Ada Anderson plodding wearily around a circle of sawdust. Thrill they did. And pay 25 cents to see it, too. And then 50 cents as ticket prices rose, and then a dollar as Anderson crept closer and closer to her finish line. And then finally, on the final day, two dollars, with a thousand more outside awaiting word of the result. The next morning, the New York Times saw fit to print a thousand words on Madame Ada Anderson. And although these words too are from 142 years ago, If you close your eyes and imagine the scene, the evening seems to burst to life. In Mozart Garden, Brooklyn, at 11 o'clock last night, Madame Anderson, the English pedestrian, successfully completed her task of walking 2,700 quarter miles in 2,700 consecutive quarter hours, which was begun at 8 o'clock p.m. on December 16th. The crowd that witnessed the finish was one of the most dense and enthusiastic ever seen in Brooklyn. The little hall is calculated to hold about a thousand persons comfortably, but double that number and perhaps more were packed into it like sardines last night and wedged so closely together that any movement save of the head and arms was impossible. Many women were seen to faint in the dense crowd, But as they could not be carried out, it is not known what became of them. This crowd was gathered in spite of the fact that the price of admission had been doubled and was $1 for standing room and $2 for reserved seats. At 9 o'clock, the police preemptively forbade the sale of any more tickets. And after that, the crowd that gathered in the streets outside the building and patiently awaited the result was twice as large as that inside. Half the crowd in the garden was composed of women who stood through hours of terrible crushing without complaint, satisfied if they could now and then catch a glimpse of the woman whom they have come to regard as one of the most wonderful of their sex.
after uh, Ada Anderson's walk, the New York Times noted that the Supreme Court had recently barred women from arguing cases before it. And the paper said, Today it is a walking match. Next it will be the coveted bar, and after that, who shall tell how soon the ballot will come? So I think even then people appreciated that these women were, um, you know, in a way breaking new ground, not only for athletes, but for, you know, the society at large. The cumulative gate receipts at Mozart's Garden was $32,000, of which Ada Anderson received 8000 In today's money, that's nearly a quarter million. But it was hard to tell in the minutes after Anderson finished if the money mattered very much at all or if she'd been motivated by something else, something more intrinsic. Inside Mozart's Garden, the dense crowd remained, and Ada Anderson stood to address them holding up her hand to command silence. Hear now the words from the reporter, present that night. She thanked them heartily for their patronage, kindness to and consideration of herself, and told them that they had aided her to the most single triumph of her life. She said that from childhood, her ambition had been to become famous by accomplishing something that no one else could do. And that never until now had that ambition appeared likely of realization. She said that she had been by turns a singer, an actress, a clown in a circus, and a proprietess of concert halls, in which ventures she met with such failures as to reduce her to absolute poverty. Then she decided to become a professional walker. And she was advised to come to America and win a name before attempting any extraordinary feat in the old country. She had taken this tip, and the result was now known. This is but one small sliver of one story from the decade-plus where pedestrianism was America's pastime. Of course, what would come to be forever known as America's pastime, capital A, capital P, organized itself in 1876 as the National League. And baseball would almost single-handedly spell the end of this walking craze. As baseball had all the surrounding hoopla of pedestrianism, but was fundamentally more nuanced and important in the 1870s, took place outside. But if you want to learn more about these women, please visit Harry Hall's website, pedestrian.com. Kate, I wonder if Ada Anderson has any descendants who are now like really big into ultra marathoning. I think she has like a great, 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 great granddaughter who loves to run hundreds of thousands of miles and be sleep deprived and pee in their diapers while they're running. <laughs> okay, so you're laughing, but this is actually a real thing. Like I, I once covered an ultra marathon for Sports Illustrated where this particular format of the race is called Big's Backyard Ultramarathon, where people ran loops of four miles every hour on the hour for three days, and the last person standing won the race. So depending on how long the last person could go, that's how long that year's race was. And the year that I covered it for Sports Illustrated actually was the first time a woman, Maggie Guterrell, had won the race. And it was so fascinating because the founder of that ultramarathon, Lazarus Lake, and he he's also an avid runner, explained to me that he thought that ultramarathoning was one of the 
few sports where there was no physiological difference between men and women and any sort of height advantage or speed or size advantage or anything like that. It was just basically endurance and stamina. And so any given year, a woman or a man could win and everyone competes against each other. There's no, you know, subdivisions in this race. Everyone's going at the same time. Yeah, because it seems like in sports, the ones that are most popular now are really condensed athletic explosion, especially if you look at football, where you're like, okay, you've got this one play, it's lasting anywhere from like three to 12 seconds. And it's, and we're repeating this like explosion of athleticism again and again and again. But the more you draw that out, as you mentioned, the more like equal you get among genders because you're going away from like bulk strength, fast twitch muscles to something that is more universal in the human condition, which is like, I don't know, willpower and training and stamina. But I think the broader thing that both Ada Anderson's walk and pedestrianism in general, and then also ultra marathoning, as you're talking about, like how much within sports we can find compelling and how limited our view of sports is right now in 2022 that we think, oh, sports is about just like the pure explosion of athleticism focused hyper on these like 10 individuals or 22 in football. And it's like, if you go back in history or if you really broaden your mind to what sports always has been, especially now when it comes to ultra marathoning and even baseball back in the, you know, when it first started, when it nationally organized at the end of the pedestrianism craze, sports was not about hyper-athleticism that would blow your mind. It was about community. It was like sports was about this like array of experience. It's only been in the last couple generations that we've been like hyper-focused on this like insane athleticism that we think fuels our enjoyment of sports. You talking about the ultra marathon and the framework of it, like running four miles every hour, that is compelling. That setup is compelling. Like you could see that setup on like a Netflix show because like I can immediately understand the stakes for each human who is doing that because I think to myself, well, I've run four miles and I usually just run four miles once. And I know what that feels like. Imagine doing that across three days. So it's like the idea of pedestrianism to me is like if we loved pedestrianism across genders, across ages for this one small decade, watching people walk, what truly is it about sports that we love? I think we've gotten away from that in our society, like what really drives our interest. Yeah, and I think one of the quotes that stuck out to me from your story was very early on, which was that it was all of the things around the sport, not the sport itself, that kept people coming back and were people, like made people crazy about it. I found it interesting because I think if you set up that sort of framework with any sport, the, you know, tailgating for it, the prop bets, you could make anything interesting and worth attending and going to. And when you take all that stuff away from it, like strip it all away and just have a game or, you know, an activity or an event, like it does not have the same meaning or value. And, and it, to a lot of people, might not be interesting at all. I think during the pandemic when there were no crowds and no fans and no tailgating and no spectators, like a lot of people realized 
this is not as fun to watch. Like, I like hearing the cheers in the background. I like seeing, like, the camp crazies in the stands wearing their, you know, matching outfits and hitting their, like, noisemaker things. Like, that's part of the pleasure that you get from watching it is seeing other people have a good time and, and enjoying it, too. Yeah. And it's funny you bring up the the pandemic as related to crowds and how much the ambiance of crowds plays into people's enjoyment of sports because I was also thinking about how during COVID you'd see people put together these just, just sort of ridiculous games in their living room, right? Like I'm going to take this ping pong ball and we're going to throw it into that hat and we have to see what object we can bounce it off of. Like these things were happening they've happened throughout human history, but like, especially during the pandemic and pretty much inherently, if you were sitting there with whoever you were isolating with and you created this little game and you understood it and you understood the stakes, you would be very invested in that game. It's not hard to get invested in sports of any kind, regardless of vertical jump. And I think that's what the point of the pedestrianism extra, extra beyond just being very interesting, historical anecdote that to me was the point of it was like, let's get back to understanding what actually drives our interest in sports. So the question that we are posing is what have we built spectacles around in our society? What sports have we built spectacles around and community around and engagement around and investment around and which ones haven't instead of assuming that we're not watching something because someone's not running as fast, maybe we need to peel even farther back and ask ourselves, well, what sports have we built the infrastructure around? Those will be the ones that we are drawn to, just like people were drawn to Ada Anderson because she was creating a spectacle of herself and creating that energy in that environment. It didn't matter that she was walking in circles, literally walking in circles. <laughs> it's because she had built a spectacle around it and then people understood the spectacle, they understood the pursuit, and then it became a ticket, a hot ticket watching a woman walk in circles. So if in 1878, people are paying $55, the equivalent of $55, to watch this woman walk in circles, think about the ramifications for what that means about our sports world and what we consume and why we consume it. It might not be why you think you consume it. Jess, that is the end of episode seven of Off the Looking Glass. Aww. I know. But it sounds like Jeff from Austin mm. is going to be around for a while because he he actually made a couple good points, Kate. Whoa. Um, he mentioned something that I don't think we've ever considered mm -hmm. as fans of, of sports in, in our conversations about women's sports, which is this concept that I don't know. Have you ever thought about money? Money. Wait, as in how it applies to sports? Yeah, like as in maybe women's sports don't make enough money and that's why what? people don't watch yes. them. Wow, I mean, thank God that he is here to frame economics. I think he's talking about... Oh, economics. economics. That's also a big word. Yeah, that's a yeah. big word. I think that's four syllables, Jess. It could be three. Syllables are very tricky. So... How do economics apply to sports? I, I, that's just like not something that I've ever really considered before. I I just see like you know the pretty colors on the uniforms. I love. And the sometimes colors. I see like an athlete, and I'm like, ooh, I like how she does her hair. I like her shoes. The yeah. ball is is cool sometimes with the way it bounces. Yeah. But and like I've never thought about the business side no, of no, it no, before. No. I just like to scream equality just as 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 loud as I can without 
understanding the underlying factors. But thank God Jeff from Austin is here to teach us about the economics. I look forward. I look forward to his next call because you and I, we can use our, we can try to use our brains to think bigger the way Jeff is suggesting. I don't know if my tiny brain can be stretched any wider with information <laughs> about money or economics, Kate, but we can try. Thank you, Jeff. Thank God you're here to teach us. Also, he's right. We really shouldn't platform people like Kirk from Fort Collins, but we'll we'll have Jeff on next week. We'll, we'll see what he has to say. I mean, I think that he's laid a great foundation for for you and I to really like look at sports and think of them as more than just mascots, which is something that... People have encouraged me to do. I love mascots. I know mascots Mascots are the best best part. They are. They are. But we we should thank our guest on today's show. Wait, we didn't have a guest. We went guestless today. Wow. Well, Kate, because you basically wrote a novel about pedestrianism. I don't mean that in a negative sense. Like I learned a lot. I feel like I just. This is why you're the professor and I'm the pupil because you just continue to teach me things (laughs) that I never knew. I think if I were the dean, I'd be your boss, though, which isn't really how this works. I think I'm just, I'm a pupil. I don't know, but you you elevate everything and you make executive decisions. So that's why I'm calling you the dean. Uh, it feels very respectful. So that that's where thank I'm going you. with it. So thank you, oh, dean, for I appreciate your respect. listening to my dissertation. I brought to the show today a long story about people walking. So we'll see how this goes for us. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Thank you to Jeff from Austin. He was written by Nameless Numberhead here out of Charleston, South Carolina. That dynamic duo was also responsible for the Calm Meditation app. So, oh no, I thought that was real. I was about to download it. I uh, it was it's fake. I, hate I mean, to I'm, tell not, you. I'm not a I'm not a coach, but I feel like the nip slip thing really stuck with me. That is, they really nailed how I feel when I try to meditate. So. Kudos to Nameless Numberhead. And also thanks to you for not only co-hosting this show, but producing it. Well, thank you, Kate. And thank you to Carl Scott, our executive producer and sound mixer. I think that's the end of the people we have to thank. Go Huskies. Goat guns are goat. Our miniature gun models will make you the center point of attention. Display them at your office desk, bookshelf, or man cave. Collect and customize goat guns to your own liking. Each goat gun model has intricate parts that snap together to assemble. Start your next hobby addiction at goatguns.com.